Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Unipolarity is my way or the highway in practice. George W. Bush virtually spoke it on his way to war in Iraq in 2003. The nations of the world had to decide, he said, either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. 20 years later, the nations of the world seem drawn experimentally to multipolarity as an alternative. Emphasis on listening, dispersion of power, peace as a victory. Joe Biden and Xi Jinping, off their collision course of just a month ago, gave the world a fresh image this week of adversaries cordially relaxed at their beach resort in Bali, rejecting notions of imminent war over Taiwan. And China's foreign ministry issued a crisp statement that could put multipolarity on a bumper sticker. It said, the world is big enough for the two countries to develop themselves and prosper together. This radio hour is a multipolar conversation with views shaped in Brazil and India. Trita Parsi strikes the keynote. He was born in Iran, raised in Sweden, an American by now, well known for three incisive histories of diplomacy in the Middle East. He's been decorated in particular for ideas improving world order. Trita Parsi, Xi Jinping actually said to Joe Biden in Bali this week, that the U.S.-China relationship is not what the world expects of them. I heard a sort of nod of respect to the rest of the planet, a little acknowledgement of multipolarity right there. I think that's true. I mean, this is a very important moment. And I think the message of the Chinese, whether we take it at face value, whether we believe it or not, is essentially that they are looking for a multipolar system, which means that they're not looking to dominate the system. They're not looking for Chinese unipolarity. They're looking for multipolarity. They believe that the United States and China need to jointly and cooperatively address many common issues. I think the United States has a similar perspective as well. At least that's what Biden said based on their conversation. But, you know, there's still a lot of tensions and other matters that complicates this issue. But I think that the bottom line is that we are at a moment in which the world is transitioning away from what existed before to something new. What that new thing is, is not entirely clear yet. It's not predetermined. But I think the idea that the United States can reverse this trend and go back to American unipolarity is not in the cards and trying to do so very likely would lead to a very dangerous and counterproductive conflict. Trita, let me ask, you say multipolarity is a reality, even now, and irreversible, but doesn't it sacrifice something of the American primacy that the Biden White House was talking last month? Yeah, there's a lot of people in Washington who are very worried about the loss of American primacy because I think they fear that if we don't dominate, then someone else will dominate us. There isn't much confidence in the idea that there perhaps could be shared leadership of the world, a multipolar system in which there are several major powers. The United States is likely still going to be the most powerful one, but it's not going to be able to call all the shots all the time. 
Now, one can clearly say from the American perspective that on the surface, this sounds extremely bad for the U.S. The U.S. is losing maneuverability. But on the other hand, when we did have unipolarity, how did we use it? Not having any checks and balances led to an extremely reckless American foreign policy that severely undermined American power. Unnecessary and endless wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., did a tremendous amount of damage to ourselves. In a multipolar world, we may have less maneuverability, but we will likely also have a less ability to engage in some of these really counterproductive wars. Our overextension in and of itself will be corrected. Uh, and that may end up being a quite a good thing. And we perhaps we will be able to use more of our focus at home rather than thinking that we need to have 750 military bases around the world to keep America safe. You're speaking of a fluid, flexible moment uh, in world affairs that we haven't felt for a long time. But really, what's at stake and what's possible? A lot is changing. I mean, we're seeing clearly that power in the international global system has shifted both to the east and to the south. Now, of course, I want to emphasize the United States is still the most powerful country in the world and will likely remain so. But I think the fear that exists in many corners is that if we think that we can use this power to reestablish primacy, meaning that we're completely dominant, that would only happen if we engage in conflict. And that conflict is likely going to be devastating. So there's a lot that is at stake. At some point, the United States, for its own self-interest, must learn to get to terms with the idea that we can show American leadership without dominating the world militarily. Right now, that seems to be something that is very difficult to imagine. But we're going to have to start imagining it because if we want to have American leadership, we're going to have to accept the fact that that needs to come without uh, American military dominance. In fact, American military dominance is not the same thing as American leadership. In the Financial Times the other day, there was a joke that multipolarity is the Russian phrase meaning after the American era. Said in jest, but what is the political cost here? I think it's interesting that you mentioned this because I think those who are seeking to push for the line that we actually have to reverse this trend and reestablish American primacy are doing so by claiming that multipolarity essentially is a Russian invention or that if we were to adjust to it and try to manage it, that would be some sort of a concession to Putin. I don't think that is true. I think we are faced with a reality that because of our irresponsible management of our own power, we have brought about a moment much sooner than otherwise likely would have been the case in which we no longer are as dominant as we were before. Now, there's no doubt that Putin welcomes this and probably wants to midwife a more multipolar world, but that is happening with or without Putin, whether he welcomes it or not. And I think from our perspective, we have to ask ourselves for the United States, is it worth trying to reverse this? What will the cost of that be? And if not, are there benefits? Are there things that at the end of the day may actually be good for us as well if we adjust to multipolarity and, and seek to have some form of shared leadership, which also means that a tremendous amount of security burdens 
will be taken off of the backs of the American people. Multipolarity sounds like a dividend of the 2022 congressional elections, which President Biden survived rather more handsomely than he expected. Multipolarity is based on how power over the course of the last couple of decades have shifted. One election or two is not having a significant impact, but what it has had an impact on, which I think you're hinting at, is greater confidence from Biden's side in feeling that now is a moment to be able to go face to face with the Chinese, but also in a way that actually could be constructive instead of this confrontational Mm -hmm. dynamics that we unfortunately have had with China for the last couple of years. What does it say that we didn't enjoy our moment of unipolar power that much? Americans love to say we're number one, whether it's football, basketball, hockey, anything. But we didn't make much of this period. Indeed, we did not. And I think there will be a lot of historians that will wrestle with this question. Why did the American people not get a chance to enjoy the peace dividend after the United States won the Cold War? Instead of giving ourselves a peace dividend and being able to enjoy it, we went and actually intensified our desire to dominate the globe militarily, built more military bases, spent far more on the military, And as Monica Tuft uh, in her new study has shown, we actually became far more interventionist after the Cold War. A quarter of all American interventions since 1776 happened after the Cold War. That is a complete waste of what could have been a peace dividend. And this is part of the reason, again, that I raised the question, what's the point of going towards some form of a conflict to reestablish American unipolarity, when at the end of the day, it actually costs us more than it benefited us because of the way that we handled it. How will we know suddenly that the world has gone multipolar, that the big table is round for a change? Well, it's not a moment. It's been an ongoing trend. But I think if there were specific moments in which we saw that the U.S.'s influence globally had really declined, it was around how the rest of the world, outside of Europe and a few Asian states reacted to the Russian invasion and reacted or largely refused to join the sanctions regime against Russia. This is despite significant efforts by the United States to get the entire world on board. And it was clear that it didn't work out because again, these countries now have the ability to pursue their own path, their own independent path and establish and follow their own preferences. 25 years ago, this is not the way this would have played out. And again, we have slowly but surely moved in this direction, largely because of the way that we mishandled our own power when we were in such a dominant position. I do believe that power is cyclical. At some point, the unipolar moment world would have given way and it would have turned into a more multipolar world. But most projections were not that this would happen this early. And the only explanation as to why it has happened so much earlier than people projected is precisely because we did not responsibly handle our own power. Instead, we recklessly wasted it on so many of these endless wars. If we recognize that the greatest threat we all face are shared threats such as climate change, pandemics, etc., not the threats we pose to each other as nation states, I think there are pathways out of this, but it's going to require far greater leadership and statecraft 
than I think we have seen from the United States in the last 25 years. Judy Parsi, thank you so much. It's a very giddy moment, and we thank you for leading us through it. Hope you're right about every inch of it. Thank you so much. Peter Parsi is Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Coming up, the creative challenge in multipolarity, says our Brazilian philosopher Roberto Unger, is to see the differences among nations not as the problem, but the solution. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Roberto Unger teaches law at Harvard. He practices politics in Brazil at the cabinet level in President Lula's last government, and he writes philosophy wherever he happens to be. In the dangerous rivalry of great powers, he says, the nations we have to hear from are the ones who don't want to choose in these times between the United States and China. Let's understand the, the very special situation that these two great powers now have. Sure. The problem that they present to the world. I described them at one point as awkward and solipsistic Gullivers. Gullivers, as in? As in Gulliver's Travels of right. Jonathan Swift. Neither of them is in imaginative communion with humanity, but in a way for opposite reasons. So the United States is an anomalous version of the rich industrial democracies of the North Atlantic world. It's the most unequal country. It's the most religious country. Hmm. It's a country in which, in the midst of tremendous inequalities and exclusions, the majority of ordinary men and women continue to believe that everything is possible. Hmm. And it has based its foreign policy from its inception on two principles. One is that it must prevent any other country from acquiring such an undisputed hegemony in its own area of the world that it can on that basis then bid for world hegemony. And the second principle is that we'll enjoy undisputed hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. There's obviously a contradiction between these principles, right. and this contradiction directly affects us in Brazil. Now, China is in an opposite situation. There has never been in modern history a world power so bereft of friends and allies as China is. Who are China's allies? That's so interesting. Pakistan, which would rather not be an ally of China. North Korea, a friendless friend. Or Cambodia, a hapless client state. That's about it. Wow. Uh, and so... China, despite lavishly spending its money, for example, in the Belt and Road Initiative, stands alone. The United States is full of friends and allies, but it has trouble engaging with any other country on an equal basis. And it claims to be the primus inter pares, the first among the equals, and so forth. So. We can't trust these two great powers with the future of humanity. Mm. They're both incompetent, and we need to create a network of shared understandings from which there would arise in the future shared arrangements, ways of ensuring these two great powers in their vital security interests to prevent war between them. We can't delegate to them this task 
because they seem to be incompetent at accomplishing it. Go back to the model of what you're talking about, which is the concert of Europe. 100 years of peace between the end of the Napoleonic Wars and World War I. Five or six great powers in Europe saying there will be an arrangement to preserve decency in this continent. How could that work in today's world? Kissinger, of course, was fascinated by the concert of Europe, and it was always in his head. How would you apply it, that wisdom today? Well, you have to apply it by universalizing it. And by the way, there's another example that we have from history, which is the League of Nations, yeah, which is generally regarded as a failure, but was in some respects superior as a historical experiment to the United Nations system because it had a very defined focus, which was the preservation of the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of the member states. Mm. There is no self-evident form of social life. So the nations ought to be seen as experiments in different ways of being human. Mm. That's why they have their unique institutional arrangements. And then these experiments have to be under the protective shield of the armed states. The nations of the world used to be like tribes, families of families, with tangible customs as the manifestation of the collective identity. So to be an ancient Roman, for example, was to live according to the customs of the ancient Romans. Now the nations of the world are on some path toward becoming something else. And the something else that they are going to become are these experiments in different ways of being human, different ways of organizing society. Difference is not the problem. Difference is the solution. Mm. Humanity is united only by diverging. That's what we want. So we want to preserve state sovereignty, not just because of the practical fact that humanity insists on it, but because we want this world in which humanity can develop by developing in different directions. You're talking about the rest of the world coming forward to cool the jets of the United States and China, calm it down. I love this line. You say, what should the world do with these two awkward and somewhat solipsistic Gullivers, as in Gulliver's Travels, China and the U.S.? It should do what the Lilliputians did with the original Gulliver. It should tie them down with strings, so numerous, so varied, and above all, so useful that the Gullivers will feel more empowered than restrained. And the result will be to turn the vinegar of their reciprocal belligerence into the wine of peaceful and productive competition. (laughs) That's what we want. The world, meaning in the first place, the second level powers, the minor powers, should come to the rescue of these incompetent Gullivers and engage them in a web of practical initiatives. Now, we have a concrete example going on at this very moment, which are the climate talks. A larger cast of powers are involving the great powers in the solution of a practical issue. The more we engage the great powers and we create the climate in which the task of identifying their vital security interests and ensuring them against the violation of those interests becomes easier to accomplish. Go back to Brazil, which is very special 
in your history and heart? Well, it's really very interesting to think about Brazil in relation to these two powers. So first think about Brazil in relation to the United States. Brazil is the country in the world that is most like the United States, even though neither the Americans nor the Brazilians are inclined to recognize this. So start with the obvious facts. There are two countries of almost identical size in the north and in the south of the Western Hemisphere, both based on European settlement and African slavery. Mm. Each is the most unequal of its type. The United States of the rich industrial democracies and Brazil of the continental developing countries. Hmm. Both are among the most religious societies in the world. And in both, in the midst of these tremendous inequalities and exclusions, the majority of ordinary men and women continue to believe that everything is possible. Hmm. They have the religion of the new, of the future. But in other respects, they're the opposite. The Americans believed that at the time of the foundation of their republic, they discovered the definitive formula of a free society. And the rest of the world must either subscribe to this formula or continue to languish in poverty and despotism. Brazil has had the opposite problem, that the Brazilian elites have not believed in themselves, and they've imported all their institutions, including from the United States. Mm. So our institutions are like borrowed clothes, <laughs> and for that reason, they don't fit us. Huh? <laughs> American sociologists have, for many years, spoken about the Brazilianization of the United States, the development of this extreme class structure in the United States. Uh, but now we see an Americanization of Brazil. So we have 40 or 50 million evangelical Protestants in Brazil who are adopting a form of spirituality imported from the United States. So it's an entrepreneurial petty bourgeoisie and millions of poor workers who have assimilated the culture of self-help and initiative of this new second middle class. And they have this idea that they're little Napoleons who are crowning themselves. So this is the way in which our spiritual and practical life has been hijacked by the United States, as it were. Despite all of this now, this complicated relation, Brazil has a problem with the United States. The United States affirms that it must have hegemony in the Western Hemisphere, the Monroe Doctrine, the Roosevelt Corollary, we can't accept that, but we're not going to discuss it theoretically. We have to engage the United States in a set of joint initiative, and we have to condition our relation to the United States on getting American help to qualify our productive system and our people to lift it up. What we want is not conventional industry. It won't come back. We want the knowledge economy. But we don't want the insular knowledge economy that exists, like Silicon Valley. We want a knowledge economy for the many. Right. And that's a new project. You always are emphasizing that poor people in this country have got to have access to yeah. the best jobs. Now we come to China, Brazil and China. Please. So Brazil, 50 years ago, had a GDP greater than China's. Maybe. Now the Brazilian GDP is a minuscule part of China's GDP. In the meantime, we haven't only deindustrialized; we've sunk into a swamp of mediocrity, of the lack of qualification of our productive apparatus and of our people. 
And we have disguised this economic fall because of the riches of nature. Brazil is extremely rich in natural resources and in agricultural and ranching possibility. So we've gone sideways. We put on the boat relatively untransformed iron ore and relatively untransformed soy, for example, and we send it to China. Mm. And in return, we get all the products of the human mind. You know, it's a bad deal for Brazil. So the same thing. We have to use our relation to China, not simply to buy these natural products, but to lift up the productive capabilities mm. of the Brazilian people. This is a very tangible example of how many countries in the world have a particular reason to change their relation to these two great powers and to solve this, this problem that the relation will degenerate and lead to world war. Marvelous example, Brazil. Speak of this country, which does not want to choose between China and the U.S., how so would it ease if the that United tension? States and China are to come to an understanding, the United States has to abandon its attempt to suppress the ascent of China. It won't work. It cannot prevent China from acquiring greater capabilities, for example, in, in the most advanced technologies, such as artificial intelligence. And it should not take provocative initiatives like the so-called Quad or AUKUS, in which with its allies in Eastern Asia and in the South Pacific, it is attempting to encircle China. Mm. It should abandon all of that. On the other hand, China has to abandon its dream of the G2, a condominium between the United States and China to rule mm. the world. It has to not impose its thesis of national unification on Taiwan by force and it has to abandon the attempt to persecute national minorities within China. And above all, it has to organize a national debate about its future. That is, without supposing that China can adopt an American style of democracy, there has to be a national debate in China. Take the economic issue. Everyone agrees that China has to shift from a focus on export-led production to a deepening of the internal market, internal consumption. Export and internal demand have to be complementary rather than substitutes for each other. This is not a simple accounting procedure. This involves major redistribution among regions, sectors, and classes. And that distribution is inevitably conflictual. It has to be organized politically. There has to be a national debate in China. So what the rest of the world should want of China is that China should be capable of organizing such a debate and not to choose between an idea of an imposed order and the disintegration of order, the breakup of China. This is all part of what the world should want of China. Did you explain what the world expects of the United States, what the U.S. has got to do? What the world should expect of the United States is that the United States cease to deny the principle of plurality and then accept the genuine division of humanity that freedom, political and economic freedom, will not have one form. It will have many forms. Humanity will 
advance by advancing in different directions, and the United States, rather than in attempting to impose its will on humanity, will participate in the construction of this organized plurality. That's what humanity wants of the United States. But for this, the Americans have to abandon some aspects of their message. And one of the aspects is their institutional idolatry, their idea that freedom is one thing, that they know what it is, that they established it, that their founders in writing the American constitutions found the way, that they know what the market order should be, and so forth. Now, the Americans are capable of much more than they led on. In the war economy of the Second World War, we know that when necessity required, the Americans discarded their supposedly sacrosanct economic dogmas and organized the economy in a completely different way with spectacular results. Between 1941 and 1945, GDP in the United States more than doubled, and the Americans were running the economy on principles that were completely antagonistic to their supposedly sacrosanct ideological principles. It sounds like what we expected from so-called BRICSA maybe 10, 15 years ago. BRICS, you mean this movement of well, the major developing countries. Yeah, exactly. Brazil, Russia, India, so, so, China, so, yeah. South Africa. The BRICS movement is now inhibited by Brazil's having practically dropped out of it during the Bolsonaro period. Now we hope it will come back. So I can say as someone who has represented Brazil in some of these BRICS meetings, that the dynamic there has been that when there was any very conflictual matter arising among the three great BRICS powers, China, India, and Russia, the tendency was to delegate it to Brazil because we're there in the South Atlantic, far away from these 2,000 years of antagonism among the Eurasian giants. And so we have an enormous amount of maneuver if we knew what we wanted. <laughs> what, what do you want? What does President Lula want? I don't know what President Lula wants. I only know what we should want. I'll, <laughs> I'll say like Teddy Roosevelt when he was asked, what do the people want? He said, I don't know what they want. I know what they should want. <laughs> <laughs> and Brazil in this moment? So first of all, among these similar state coalitions, they're the coalitions that bring together states that have a comparable function in the international system. The G7 is not satisfactory as an instrument for this purpose of organizing world order because it's basically just the United States and its allies. The G20 is much better. It's broader, it has a larger cast. The other major similar state coalition that can serve as an agent in the construction of this entente of the intermediate powers is the BRICS, because the BRICS brings together the major developing countries of Eurasia and is therefore a fantastic instrument for this practice. Coming up, a new bargain between the U.S. and the global South for this time of de-alignment. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Sarang Shidor of the Quincy Institute was born in India, educated in the US and in the UK. 
The broadest wave he observes in the world is pushing a non-alignment of nations, a de-alignment particularly with the great powers of the old Cold War. The Global South, Shador says, has a message for the U.S. in a new order. They're saying two things. The first thing they're saying is don't force us to choose between yourself and your rivals because your rivals are not necessarily our rivals. In fact, your rivals in some cases may be our friends and we want you to be our friend too. But if you push us too far in forcing us to choose, it will have some consequences. But the other message is that if you stop doing these coercive things, stop imposing things like secondary sanctions to end our ties with your rivals, then we are very open to welcoming you with your trade, with your investment, with your technology, uh, with your tourists. Sharon, could I ask you to speak about India in particular? Because A, you grew up there, but also because it's a familiar story in certain ways. India, the jewel of the British Empire, now one of the world's great democracies, rival of China, never especially close to the United States, has a sort of strategic military supply relationship with Russia. What is India looking for in the search for a multipolar order? I think like most Global South countries, India wants to get rich. (laughs) Interesting. All Global South countries have an urgent project of catching up to the wealthy world. They know how Americans live their life. They know how Japanese and Europeans live their lives. And they want similar things. The second thing India wants is a say in how the world is run. This is the other complaint of the Global South, that you have a world structure that was set up basically in 1945 with the UN system, with the five permanent members of the Security Council, with the IMF and the World Bank and the voting rights that exist in those bodies, with all sorts of treaties and institutions that have been set up by the US and its European allies for the most part, which don't reflect today's realities of power on the ground. India wants to reform these structures like Brazil does or Indonesia does to have a greater say in these bodies to have more representation, more votes, be in more of the rooms where these decisions are taken. So, Ryan, you've written an interesting paper advocating a new U.S. bargain with the Global South. Tell us about it. It's to find a way for the U.S. to stop this slide of influence that it's experiencing in the Global South and to regain its influence, regain its reputation, and benefit from that process. I think the message uh, should be heard in Washington that this approach of trying to force countries to be like us, to see the world the way we do, is not possible. It's not just a question of ethics, but it's a question of practicalities. We are not in a unipolar world anymore where this can be achieved. And if it is achieved, Mm. there'll be a big price to the U.S. So that's the first step is to accept that the Global South has a non-aligned approach and resist the temptation to view this region primarily through the lens of the strategic competition against China and Russia. 
Along with that, the U.S. also needs to pull back on these frames of democracy versus autocracy or the rules-based order, which are not credible given the double standards we see in Washington. They're also, again, not feasible as a frame that anybody really buys outside of this town. And the benefits to the United States are completely unclear to me uh, by using these frames. So in our time, there needs to be a collaboration on trade and investment, yes, but as important or even more, collaboration on climate action. Countries want an understanding with the U.S. and other wealthy countries by which they can reduce their fossil consumption and also adopt technologies that will take them to a more greener place. So here there is all the reason to collaborate with, especially with middle powers who have their own innovations, their own pools of talent, that this can be really a two-way process. This is not about the U.S. just doling out cash. This is about joint collaborative projects to find solutions in key regions of the world. So I have a lot of hope for the G20 actually evolving uh, into something. But then again, the United States and indeed China and Russia have to understand that this is the task of our times. Sarang Shador is Director of Studies at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Back now to Roberto Unger, the Brazilian philosopher who served in the last Lula government a decade ago as Minister of Strategic Affairs. You've given us a wonderful picture of Brazil between China and the U.S., not wanting to choose or deny either opportunity. Does your friend President Lula, back in power, does he understand the role, the opportunity, the responsibility here? My impression is that Lula is very interested in having Brazil play a major role on the world scene. Huh? But the foreign role is intimately related to the internal project of Brazil. We have a vast problem of inequality. But our fundamental problem in Brazil is not inequality. Our fundamental problem is mediocrity. Hmm. And this phenomenon of using nature to disguise our economic decline. We should want a strategy of development that is based on the marriage of intelligence and nature, not on the divorce of intelligence and nature. Take the Amazon, for example. What would it mean to have sustainable development in the Amazon? Sustainable development is either primitive, artisanal, like native populations taking rubber out of the trees, without technology, without science, and without scale, and therefore without a future. Or sustainable development must be a highly vanguard form of production, mobilizing the resources of world science to use the biodiversity of the Amazonian forest, its biochemical potential, its energetic potential, preserving it. That's a variant of the knowledge economy. So either it's very primitive or it's very advanced. There's nothing in the middle. And that's what we should want. And for that, we should want our relations to the great powers, the United States and China, to serve the promotion of that objective, to help us on this road to a knowledge economy for the many and sustainable development as a variant of the idea of an inclusive knowledge economy. What if, Roberto Unger, neither China nor the United States 
which is to say Xi Jinping or Joe Biden, want to play this game. They'd rather tough it out. See who's number one. They're not good enough at this alone. So we have to come to the rescue. Now you could say they're so bad at it that they will prevent anyone from helping them. But we have to try our best, right? What are the alternatives for humanity? Interesting, you're not looking to Europe to figure this out. Europe is another example. So if we were to make a list of different states in the world who have an interest, like Brazil has an interest, in changing its relation to both the United States and China and participating in the construction of this order that lessens the danger of world war, we would say another example is Singapore, a tiny city state with a Chinese background, right. with intense cultural and economic links to the United States. It doesn't want to choose between them. And Europe, because Europe wants to deepen its engagement with China, but Europe is ally of the United States. These different examples are examples of states who are in a similar predicament. This predicament is now very widespread in the world. I'm wondering, Roberta Unger, what are we being shown in Ukraine, where the world seems to be helpless to either mediate or stop or threaten to bring that awful war to an end? The Ukraine war is, is a corollary of this situation. It's a byproduct. On one side, we have a, a state unresigned to its loss of superpower status, trying to bring back a remnant of its lost empire, of its former empire. On the other hand, we have the United States and its allies advancing towards Russia and leading Russia to believe that they want to set up a military power on its borders. This was the whole debate about Ukraine joining NATO, which, of course, would have provoked the animosity of any Russian leader, not just of, of Putin. In a world in which the major powers were part of this network of reciprocal understandings of cooperative initiatives, misunderstandings and conflicts like that become not impossible but less likely. What makes them less likely? What makes them less likely is that if people are engaged in a set of variants of productive and peaceful competition, it's less likely that they will interpret each initiative as the presage of an attack. After all, remember that some years ago, at one point, Russia itself considered joining NATO. Right. The situation has degenerated vastly in this situation in which there's no substitute. The alliances of the Second World War are now completely over, and the situation, the brief interlude of unipolarity immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union has been replaced by the new multipolarity, Fortunately, I would say, but the multipolarity is anarchic. It's not organized yet. The fundamental claim in this argument is that the organization can't come from above. It can't be top down. It has to come from below. And it's a genuinely novel creation because humanity has never created order from below in that way, except through the form of empire. The United States was born with a sort of unipolar mentality. We're number one. We're unique. We're an exceptional nation. We surely don't want to be dominated by China, 
But how do we get to a head where we don't have to dominate China ourselves? Well, that's not really a question about the world. That's a question about the United States. Right. And uh, it goes back to my argument that the we have to think, what was the message of the American prophets? I'm thinking of Emerson, Whitman, Lincoln. Jefferson. Saturnine form would be Melville. So the core of the message of the American prophets was religious. It was that the, the individual is not just connected to God, the individual is God. And mm. the distinctive contribution of the American people to the religious evolution of humanity lies in these religions that Harold Bloom called the American religion. Yes. Not the organized forms of Christianity, Protestant and Catholic, not the humanistic secularization of Orthodox Christianity, but this third religion like Latter-day Saints, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, the individual directly is God. The central idea of American democracy was this faith in the elevation of ordinary men and women. It wasn't the, the humanization of society, it was the divinization of humanity. But this message, this prophetic message, with all of its progressive power, its power to subvert and inspire, from the very beginning, suffered two taints. The first taint was the taint of the Napoleonic complex, you know, the individual as this little self-maker. It's a disturbance in the imagination of the relation between self-construction and solidarity. So the individual builds himself, he becomes strong, and then as the result of his strength, he becomes capable of generosity. He becomes a philanthropist, for example. That's not the relation between self-construction and solidarity. Solidarity is internal to self-construction. We develop through our connections. It's not that the connections come afterwards. The second taint was the taint of institutional idolatry, which is this idea that the country discovered the definitive form of a free society at the outset, and it has only to be adjusted from time to time under the provocation of crisis. And of course, this is a Christian heresy. The Christian has to say, institutions are dust in the face of God. We have to change them, disrespect them, transform them in order to revere the individual. That's the Christian view, not the heresy of the Americans. So if the United States is to become more open to the rest of humanity, it has to abandon these heresies. It has to, it has to criticize. It's not enough to enact the message of the American prophets. The message of the American prophets has to be criticized. Roberto Unger, where do you suppose we are in the long history of the American experiment, the American idea, the American nation? I think it is related to this problem of the, of the revolutionary program because the United States, despite now being seen as a counter-revolutionary power, is a revolutionary power. And its history is intimately associated with the fortunes of this revolutionary project, which has inflamed the whole world for 300 years. And with its political side and its romantic side. Now, as I say, this project is now strong. 
it continues to command the agenda of humanity, has many enemies, its enemies respond to it, but it's also weak because its adepts no longer know what its next step should be. And like any great program in the world, like any great human initiative, it is subject to the law of the spirit, which is that we can keep only what we reinvent. So the fundamental spiritual problem of the United States is a variant of this universal problem. The United States doesn't know what the next step should be on either the political side or the personalist side. And in order to do that, it has to be capable of criticizing itself, of abandoning its deviations, its perversions, its heresies and continuing the project in some form. New institutions, economic and political institutions, new ways of thinking about the relation between the individual and his connections to other people, the multiplication of forms of collective action in society. That's what the Americans would have to do. So it's the most difficult thing in the world, self-transformation. And listening to the rest of the world. That's the consequence, right? Because. In order to be open to experience, and therefore to others, we have to cast down our shields. And we only cast down our shields when we have a higher idea of the possibilities. I want to hear more from Brazil and Mr. Lula. Thank you, Roberta Unger. Thank you. Thanks also to Trita Parsi and Sarang Shidor, both of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You've just heard a new installment of In Search of Monsters, continuing our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org or at their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. And look for an additional short conversation there and also on our site that I'll be having with the world of the Quincy Institute each week of this series. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.